Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. Last week I was in London, so I used this opportunity to meet with John Oswald, who is a, a true business design pioneer. He was actually the first business designer at Fjord, where he defined um, the kind of the role of business designers at Fjord, and also he grew the theme. Um, so currently he's working at a strategic design consultancy called Method, and we met uh, at Method's uh, office in London and decided to record a podcast on the business design topic. And we discussed basically how business design started at Fjord and just in general how it started. We discussed the evolution of business design. Um, John also shared like his the five patterns that he noticed with all the business designers, the five patterns in terms of the profiles that these uh, talent working as business designers have. We also talked about hiring business designers, how it works, and also how the typical deliverables look like, and so much more. It's like a really like a business design one-on-one uh, podcast where you can hear and learn a lot about the fundamentals of this discipline. So without further ado, here is my conversation with John Oswald. I think we can just start by maybe talking about the beginnings of business design. It's one of those things that everybody now, a lot of people talk about business design, Mm. but it's really isn't, it really kind of isn't clear where it's coming from. And you being there when it kind of started, Mm. maybe you can shed some light for us. Yeah. Well, when did I start? 2011. So January the 4th, 2011. That's when I started at Fjord. And I was hugely excited because I'd been given this amazing opportunity to do something which hadn't been done in Fjord before. Nobody really did it in other agencies either. And I was completely new to it. I was new both to design and to what this thing was called business design. Now, the reason I was offered the job was um, pure and simple. I knew people at Fjord. They knew me. They knew I didn't quite fit in in the consulting company I was at before. And where were you before? I was at a, as a software business called Andox, um, and we were setting up a consulting division. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was, I thought it was going to be like lots of SI, systems integration type consulting, because Andox focuses on the telecoms market. Um, you know, they, they, they have good billings and ratings, yeah. and CRM products and stuff. But I ended up doing quite a lot of business strategy type of work and implementation and business change and all this stuff. It was really, really interesting. Um, but this was about the time when we were starting to see an explosion of interactive, digital stuff happening. And I could kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. And we were having a job, or a difficult job, convincing clients that they had to think of it differently. And, you know, dare I say, think about design thinking before that was really a thing. Um, so when this opportunity came up at a design agency called Fjord to do this thing called business design, I thought, well, yeah, I've got to do it. I have to. So you were the number one at Fjord? I was, yeah, I was the first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were, sort of coincidentally, um, there were two or three other people appointed to a similar position within about six months. And I, I, I credit uh, Louisa Heinrich uh, with some of the initial thinking here. She now works at Ford um, in the design division. But um, 
at the time. She was a strategist in, in Fjord. And I think she and somebody called Prashant Agarwal, who went on to run Fjord in New York. I'm just giving credit where it's due, right? So there, there, was, a, there was a lot of thinking sure. given to this before I'd even started. But, but I was the first you know, person with the title and, uh, and the mandate to you know, turn it into a thing. Did I know what it was? No. Um, <laughs> I yeah. knew that there were some people from a bit of internet research. I knew that there were some people at IDEO who did something similar, but I had this instinct that it wasn't quite right what they were trying to do. I didn't think it would work to just put, you know, senior ex-McKinsey or MBA qualified people into a design agency and expect business design to happen. I had a hunch that it was something to do with business model, business case, measurement, um, OKRs, KPIs, stuff like this. But the only way I could figure out to see if it would work or not would be to work with the projects going on in Fjord at the time and just see if it could fit. Mm. Just bring an open mind, uh, be humble, get involved, and see what happens. And it worked. You know, within within about a year, I think we'd, we'd proven that, yes, you can talk about design work, but the business impact of design work. Mm. You can talk about design principles on a project, but relate those principles to the, the annual report that a, that a company publishes, because there's a direct line of sight to the, to the business outcomes they want to generate. You know, design work doesn't happen in isolation. It's, um, it's funded by somebody, and somebody, else, some, somebody somewhere else has an expectation of value from it. So, yeah, business value. Yeah. How would you define business design? Yeah, I get that question quite a lot. And, um, and as we grew business design to a much, much bigger team of people, the, the definition got tighter, but it has been a bit of a journey. Um, so if I was to summarize it now, I'd say, I wouldn't say a single sentence, because I find it quite hard to distill mm -hmm. it into a sentence, but I would say business design is an approach to design as a whole that ensures that the ripple effects of everything that design represents are properly understood, articulated, and played back in terms of business impact and outcomes. Okay. So that's a very long-winded explanation. I suppose there's another lens on it as well, which is that business design is also translation. It's a translation layer. It's, it's the thing that makes complicated technology, people, and um, design decisions relatable mm. um, and it means that different communities of people can understand each other yeah um, a, no. lot of, a lot of people will describe business design as translation actually if you if you pair it back slightly do you agree with that i mean i, I can maybe first say i don't completely like agree just with the translation part because it would no, mean no, we're no, just no, kind of uh, yeah then but it's but an important soft skill of the whole thing i think but it's important maybe to talk about it because some people who are hiring like a first business designer that's what i expect or when they are hiring like a freelancer it's Hey, I just need someone who come in, comes in at the end of the project and just sparkles some business uh, case at the end. Just do the numbers. <laughs> yeah. But I think the numbers are part of the beginning, like just talking about numbers, but also other stuff like strategy, business models. Um, so that's why translation, I think, is just the, almost like the final bit. I think if you, if you put a business designer on an engagement towards the end of that engagement and expect magic to happen, it's probably not going to happen. You, you'll, get, you'll get a bolt-on piece of PowerPoint that describes something, <laughs> which is a little bit take it or leave it. And I've done that. We, you know, we, we did that in our very, very early projects, but we very quickly realized that you get a lot more value out of the thing when 
you have a multidisciplinary team um, with ideally business tech, design, research, uh, leanings, all sort of collaborating together and working mm. on what the design outcome could be. And just to, just to build on that with a little metaphor, if I may, um, I was talking about this with, with a, a designer in Paris who I, I really respected. Uh, still do, of course. He's not dead. Um, <laughs> and we were, we were talking about you know the, the value of where you put business design in a project, and we discussed the the Eames chair. So Charles and Ray Eames, um, hugely influential designers yeah. um, of you know, physical products, um, and the Eames chair. You know the one with the sort of um, yeah. Eiffel Tower legs. Yeah. I mean, any fool can design a chair. Like any designer can like design a chair. It's, it's one of those things that designers always do, like bicycles and chairs and stuff. It's, it's wonderful, but the genius of the, the Eames chair, and it's probably not just Eames actually, you could say the same for Alvar Alto and, and so on, but is that on the, on the, on the first hand, it's, it's highly usable. It's a comfortable piece of furniture. So, you know, desirability as well, because it's very, very nice to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an extremely innovative piece of materials design. They were, they were the first to experiment with fiberglass in, in a new way. So they didn't just design a chair. They designed the aesthetics of the chair, the functionality of the chair, the materials that would go into the chair, the industrial process by which the chair would be manufactured, and the partnership with, um, with Herman Miller that took it to market and turned it into a commercial venture. Exactly. So that's, that's where business design kind of really sings. If you, if you use that metaphor, then who do you want on your project? Well, you need somebody to, to think through the usability and, the, and how, is this, how is this thing, this object, or what is the human need we're trying to fulfill? Love the problem. You need people to figure out, well, what are the implications of that when it comes to what this could become as a business, as well as an artifact, as well as a piece of design? So, uh, yeah, that's another long-winded answer to your question. But it, it, this is exactly the same um, example I used uh, when I was giving a talk a few months back, good design is good business, yeah. and I gave the example from the Bauhaus designers saying that and they basically designed all their furniture with viability in mind because they tried to make it so, in such a way that it could be done on scale. Yes. And now and then I provoke the audience saying, now imagine just building the business at the end. You cannot because it's part of exactly how you make the whole chair. So the viability, the ability goes together and feasibility, obviously. Um, one thing I wanted to really ask you is, um, it's very specific, but like what are your favorite business design tools? So I guess you've tried a lot of those different things, a lot of different canvases, frameworks. So I don't think tools are business design. You know, a lot of people try to bolt, just say, hey, what are the tools I should be using? And then I can become a business designer. I think it's more about the mindset. But still, like, I, from, I, w- I would like to hear from you, what are the tools you're using yeah. and maybe what we can also do? Um, it's a good one. And it's one we've struggled with over the years. Um, I suppose when I started, the, the only thing really on the market was the business model canvas. Yeah. You know, I mean, so we all read um, Business Model Generation and we all saw the light and, and all this kind of stuff. But I, I have to say, with the greatest respect to, to Alex, um, I've not met, by the way, with the greatest respect to Alex, I, I always found the book to be slightly patronizing to people working in business roles and slightly condescending to designers. 
Um, it sort of pitched it in the middle, but slightly missed both marks. But nonetheless, it's a very powerful tool. Yep. And I've used it many, many times. It's very, very good. How often, though, do you get to question a client's entire business model? Answer, probably never. Yep. It's a useful tool to understand a situation and to provoke a little bit, but, you know, so the tool gets quite limited quite quickly. So what do you do about it? Well, as we, as we grew the business design team at Fjord, um, we were much more attracted to, well, we, we had the problem I think you're alluding to. We didn't really understand what our process was. Mm. Or do we have a process? What are the tools we use? Ah, we're not sure. So the more people we had, the more points of reference we started to build up. And the more I encouraged people to share, connect, and build up uh, a bit of a, I hesitate toolkit. to use the word library or toolkit, yeah. because that's a bit, it's a bit obvious, but I mean, playbook sounds a bit, a bit wanky, but um, you know, yeah. we, we, had a, we had a sort of repository of, of things that we could use. And my, my vision was always, you, you start on a, on a project, the, first, the, the, the most important thing you've got to do is, is, is build empathy with the situation you're in and the clients you're working with and figure out what's going to work. And then you just, you know, just, you just pick bits and things from the, from the toolkit that, that feel like they work. Um, steal with pride, you know. Um, so I don't think there's, 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 there's really a toolkit as such. However, if, you, if you've got a working knowledge of <laughs> both Excel and PowerPoint, help. Um, but if you've got a working knowledge of things like Business Model Canvas, of how a business case works, how a balance sheet works, um, if you're able to um, build a KPI model, there's num numerous examples of those. Uh, build an understanding of uh, value trees and how um, KPIs ladder up to business outcomes. If you're able to think about operating models and how organizations are, are set up. If you're able to think through um, technology architecture at a certain level mm -hmm. and how that ladders up as well. If, you, if you've got working knowledge of all of those things, then you're going to have a pretty rounded understanding of, of, of stuff. And plus, there's a number of sort of product management, um, um, uh, sort of lean, um, lean canvas type of type of approaches as well, which are also good to beg, borrow, and steal from. Um, I rightly or wrongly, um, I think if you overdefine a tool set, then you give the impression that you can learn the tool set and that makes you a business designer. Yeah. So to your point about mindset, that's the critical thing that, yeah. that it all hinges on really. Um, yeah. I've worked in places which have, you know, 17 canvases that, that represent the process of how you get to a new service, but it's, it's great, but it's also quite limiting. Yeah. Yeah. For example, like speaking about the business model canvas, it became almost, almost like a default way to design a business model, even though sometimes just asking good questions can be much better. Like, hey, how can I align incentives? And that's something you usually don't answer in the canvas. It's like, I need to do research, talk to the stakeholders, and then research other business models to bolt onto what we already have. Yes. So, but still, like, I like to talk about tools because it tells me at least what people do. Like, just by giving out the name of the tools, I see what other things are you thinking of, like organizational design, you think about the metrics, you think about the financial stuff, you think about the business models, the strategy. Mm. So there was one that I wanted to go deeper into. You mentioned the value tree. Was it the value tree? Or, mm. Yeah. So I think this yeah. is super interesting and very useful for a lot of designers, maybe also listening. Like, what is value tree? Yeah. So uh, any 
given moment on any project you'll ever work with, with any client, <laughs> there's, there's only two things that matter at the end of the day. Is, is it going to make more money or is it going to save money? Bottom line, top line. Uh, revenue generation or cost cutting. Now, traditionally, a lot of consulting type of projects are about bottom line, cost cutting, um, profitability, um, but mostly about optimizing. And most design-focused projects are about revenue generating, new things that create new revenue, new markets or whatever. Or if you're in, if you're in the NGO kind of space, um, a, a, a new vision for solving a problem, um, you know, value of a different nature. But fundamentally, it's sort of top yeah. and bottom line. Um, so a value tree is just a way of um, laddering back from those two big things into all the little things that make it up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, depends on the industry you're in. Let's take uh, telecommunications as an example. So, so top line top line revenue generation will come from more subscribers. It will come from longer contracts. It will come from higher prices. Uh, yes, higher prices, better devices. Um, more digital services that you can buy and so on, product bundles. Yeah. You know, it'll come from all of those things. The bottom line will come from uh, contact center. And Maybe let's quickly just define the bottom line and the top line also for the listeners. What exactly are those things? So, yeah, look, when, I, when I say, um, it's, all, it's also shorthand really, but um, all I'm meaning is, does it generate money for the company or does it cost the company something? Is it, is it a... Is it a fixed cost that isn't going to go away? Is it, um, is it machinery? Is it um, people costs? There's a difference between obviously capital expenditure and operational expenditure, but you know, that's... Yeah. Um, so in traditional consulting land, you're, you're about optimizing profits and capex in, in those areas so that profitability ensues. Um, so yeah, the, the, the way that it will always work is um, you sell a product to somebody, there's a cost of sale of that product, which is the the time it took to research it, the number of people you need to employ to sell it, the number of ads you need to buy to market it, and so on. And if your cost of sale exceeds your cost of, or the price that you make for the product, then you have a problem. Yep. Uh, there are nuances to that, of course. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now to go back to the telecommunication example. So we oh, have yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the top line stuff is all about you know, new products. Yeah. Uh, new services, um, additional services, longer contracts, all those things, all those, you know, the things that will generate more money and, and the below the line stuff um, about what the product costs, it's things like the sunk cost of the network that, that, it, that you need to have in order to, to ensure that your phone actually works and where you're, you're fixed to your mobile phone works. Uh, the R&D costs that go into building out and researching the future of 5G, 6G, 7G, whatever. Uh, the cost of serving customers, which is contact centers, physical stores, um, the supply chain to get something to a customer, all those things are the costs that you know make up the the unit cost of the or the unit price of the thing that you're you're selling to a customer. So, yeah, um, when you're in optimization mode, you might be trying to help your contact center workers be more productive yeah. or more effective, really, um, at solving customer issues. Because if that happens, then ideally, contact center people are a bit happier and they get the job done quicker and it's less costly. Yeah. But if you're working at the level of, let's research what customers of the future are going to be doing and what yeah. telephony services they're going to need in the future, that's that's more of a design task. And therefore, um, that's more about value creation in the future yeah. and what are the new products going to be and so on. 
but you just got to understand the nuance of, of where of where these things fit and the value tree is just a way of mapping is this costing money or is it making money and you know in what in what way and how does that relate to the overall organization's um, way it generates value exactly i think it's one of the tools you can really use on any project just to understand what you're even trying to achieve just like take a whiteboard and say okay yeah. every business is about profit this is at the top and then on the left hand side you have the revenue on the right you have the cost and then you ask your client or your yeah. team like okay what is affecting revenue what is affecting cost what are we trying to do here totally it's actually quite old school consulting you think yeah about it. um and i often i often quite like to borrow things from the consulting world and bring them into design because like why not um i often think of uh, michael porter as being like the godfather of, of strategy of course he, he he is was but um some of the, some of the tools tools that he used were, were kind of design thinking tools, really, long before anybody was talking about things like design thinking. You know, completely agree. Is, I mean, nice. Porter's Five Forces and uh, Three Generic Strategies are like the core of also the DMBA yeah. because I think they are right. design tools. Because if you do like a really good industry analysis with the Porter's Five Forces, you can see, hey, actually, we as a designers, we should focus on our bargaining power or we should focusing on the the internal competition or whatever. But one thing you said earlier really, really uh, struck me, which is typically designers focus on generating more revenue, not on cutting costs, which I completely agree is the current state. Mm -hmm. I believe, though, that design could also be applied to cutting costs, which is currently not being done at all. I don't actually recall any project where I worked on doing the cutting, cutting costs. So the question for you I have is like, do you think design could and should be applied to this type of projects also? Uh, so a little, little anecdote. Um, when, when Fjord was first acquired by Accenture in 2013 uh, through to when I left, which was about 17, um, I would say we were almost doing about 70% of the work focusing on what we were calling employee experience. Now, design has been about user experience, right there wrongly, for, for quite some time. Employee experience was just our shorthand for, well, we're focusing on making the, the tools of the trade, you know, the, the, the behind the scenes stuff work better for, for employees because happier and more fulfilled employees equal usually happier customers. So it, it just makes sense. What I'm getting at though is that usually the drivers for projects like that were actually cost cutting. So we'd be, we'd be doing projects with, for example, engineers in the field to make their tool set just easier to use. And researching with, you know, the, the user research here was going out with, with field engineers to repair water pipes or repair telecom lines and stuff. Um, fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different level of user research actually because it's very technical and there's a lot to actually absorb. And the more you can co-create with those people rather than just pretend like you understand it and play it back, yeah. the better. Um, but fundamentally, the the driver from the top for projects like that was, well, I can't afford such a huge field force anymore. I need to find ways to make them more efficient. So I think design can, and yes, should play a yeah. role in those kinds of engagement. I mean, why not? Um, because I often feel like employees and companies are very underserved by, by their, their, um, they're corporate masters. They're, they're not particularly given the tool sets that to enable them to be successful. They, they struggle with um, very antiquated systems and processes that feel like they're held together with little bits of sellotape. Um, 
And that's not very comfortable, especially when in the outside consumer world, everything just works really, really well these days. Yeah. So why should that, tra- that experience not translate into what it's like to be at work? You know, why should I have to struggle really hard to find something on, uh, on a really antiquated um, file sharing system mm. uh, or have to use a little bit of mainframe to find a bit of information that I then have to copy and paste into a CRM system, which I then have to copy and paste into a spreadsheet for management purposes and so on. I mean, work life can feel really shit for a lot of people. So if you're able to just make, I'm, I'm always going to come from the perspective of let's make people's lives at work better. Um, and I think that's how most designers would tend to, to view it. Um, I make that important distinction because I don't think you'll get a lot out of a design team if you say to them, right, we're doing a cost-cutting initiative. Yeah, if you frame it like this, no. Right, exactly. Um, now, the, the, big, the big objective may be to reduce costs, but I'd like to think that we would do that by making life at work more fulfilling for more people. And then you're basically, saying, and you're basically saying, I'm turning my user centricity towards the employee. My employee yes. becomes my yes. customer or my yes. user. Yes. Yeah. Correct. So, so yeah, lots and lots of, um, I've seen loads of projects like that, actually. Um, sometimes, and I think this is a very important area as well, HR systems. So um, people, I suppose, you can, there's various definitions for HR. I, I, like, I like the way the industry is evolving somewhat. Um, But it's a very fruitful territory for design. How do you make people's employee experience from joining to leaving and then maybe coming back again much, much better? Yeah. It's a really nice design challenge. It's a, yeah. And, I mean, and there's lots of, um, again, I saw lots of projects um, in this area and continue to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very fruitful. Cool. Um, I think just thinking about the processes in a company, like, you know, like processes can be designed too. Just how somebody talks to maybe like on a customer help desk how do they talk to a person um what do they have to do in the back end for this kind of stuff to really enable them to do better stuff just mm-hmm. so not just applying this design knowledge that we have and design mindset to products and stuff but the processes is still quite underserved and unexplored area i guess yeah yeah um a, cu- a couple of points on that i mean that was the start of my career actually was sort of designing processes and big systems Um, when I first started work at Accenture, uh, you know, long, yeah. b- long before I was doing business design. Um, I mean, you know, we'd always look for ways to design them better and so on and so on. Um, but now we have a different tool set to make that work differently. Um, so there's a, really, there's a really interesting book which uh, somebody recommended to me a couple of years ago. It's called um, Ethnography, the Corporate Encounter. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's basically a book by quite traditional ethnographers about what it's like to research um, full-on manufacturing processes. Tell me the title again. Ethnography, Ethnography the Corporate Encounter. Corporate Encounter. Yeah. Wow. That's... Because like, traditionally, <laughs> most, most ethnographers were not sent behind the scenes to, to look at manufacturing processes. No. They're, they're, yeah. they're sent out in the field to figure out you know, what, make, what makes people tick. The, the challenge is exactly the same. But um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting reading the article because there's a lot of good advice for ethnographers who've never done this before about you know, just how different the context is when you're, when you're researching that kind of you know, back-end process. Because, yeah, it's political and it's, there are a lot of agendas on the go. And 
you're never going to have the same amount of time to research it properly that you would expect to have if you were doing perhaps a more traditional piece of ethnographic work. Um, I, I say this because um, I have a fear sometimes that that design will quickly become the process mapping of the 21st century. In other words, process mapping was really exciting in about 2002 for a while, with the greatest of respect to all my process mapping colleagues out there, mm-hmm. um, because people had discovered this this new way of understanding that that business is operated by a whole series of processes. And if you understand all the processes, then they all ladder up to a big vision of the architecture of the company, which then informs the technical architecture, then informs the business architecture. Um, but it was very reductionist, and, and it led to a lot of people who just did process work. Now, design is totally different. Design is about human centricity, and it's about understanding motivations and needs, and it's much more about empathy. Um, but that combined with a, a knowledge of how processes work can really, really help. Because if you take an empathetic lens on how processes work, you can see who is disappointed and who is let down and who, who is overjoyed sometimes <laughs> when something works. Um, it's, just, it's just a much more meaningful lens. And my fear of a lot of design agencies being acquired by consultancies is that um, the design tools will be seen as you know, re- repeatable things that anybody can be taught in order to do better, better process mapping and then better technical architecture. Because that's not what it's about. Yeah. Getting on my high horse a little bit there. No, 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 it makes sense. So, yeah, I want to hear your comment on this trend that we're seeing design agencies being acquired by mm. um, advertising groups uh, or management consultancies. What do you think about it? <laughs> Well, I've been at the heart of it for a very long time. Um, so, so I was ex-Accenture, I joined Fjord. Uh, I left the consulting industry behind and joined design, and then two years later, Accenture buys Fjord. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Method, which I'm currently MD of, um, of, of the London studio of Method. Method was one of the first agencies to be acquired by a, by a much bigger entity. We were acquired by Global Logic in, in 2011. Um, it's, it's actually works really, really well, I have to say. Um, not always, but if you think about it, the, the agenda of companies like Accenture, Little Logic, and so on, is, is, to, is to build better relationships with their clients, because that is how the business works. Um, you build better relationships, you get to work, you have the privilege to work on much more interesting things, and, and therefore, you know, money flows. Uh, it's all good. Um, and. I'll speak of Accenture first. I mean, they, they've been trying internally to to do uh, more CMO-oriented or CDO-oriented work, um, but it's very hard to to do that internally with the people you've got. So they realised they had to go on a bit of an acquisition spree, and they they recruited some people who were quite well plugged in in the agency scene um, and who were visionary enough to to know how to go about this. Mm. So the Fjord acquisition was tremendously successful. Um, not not everybody will, will give you that answer. Some some folks left, obviously. And it's not it's not for everybody. Uh, some people will tell you that the culture of the of, of different Fjord studios changed from one day to the next. You know, you can take or leave stories like that. Some of them are true, some of them are not. Um, but when you take a step back, from from my from my perspective, working in the maelstrom of the whole thing, mm-hmm. the, our work actually got a lot better because we were working on much bigger, more important, much more high value challenges 
than we had before. Mm -hmm. Because we were working now with some of the biggest companies on the planet, working on challenges which, which impacted millions of people, not thousands of people. And that, that's a huge opportunity and a huge privilege. And if you do it well, it has massive impact. And so the projects we, we started to work on were bigger, better, more interesting, involved collaborating with people that we'd never collaborated with before. Um, I actually had a, f to, to come back to sort of the business design thing, I had a fear that the business design was going to be taken over by consulting. I, I kind of figured that, well, I'm, a, I'm an ex-consultant, we're now working in design, surely other people can do this, so they're just going to take it away from me. I was wrong. Um, I was basically told, look, we in Accenture, we can't do what you do. Um, please ramp up your team, grow it. So we did. You know, so it was a huge opportunity. Maybe talk more, more about it because a lot of people, yeah. when you first explain what business design is, say, oh, that's like mm. management consultants or that's like uh, something else. Insert whatever you want, like product managers, uh, business developers. So why, why did they say this? What, what separates management consultants from business designers? Creativity. In what way? Because um, management, management consultants would also say that they are creative, right? So, I'll, I'll hammer home this point about creativity, actually, because it's, it's also an answer to your previous question about the design as part of consultancy thing. Mm -hmm. um, if, if design agencies have space to operate and license to operate within the consulting environment and are able to creatively approach the problems and contexts that they need to work with, things will be a lot better. Mm -hmm. but, if, but if it's a repeatable process, then that goes away. And then you may as well just be doing process mapping. Right. So when I say creativity, I mean defining creativity. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a podcast in itself. Actually. Good luck. Yeah. Um, but what I'm getting at is curio intellectual curiosity, empathy, making the effort to join dots that had hitherto not been joined. Mm -hmm. So what I look for when I'm, when I'm talking to business designers, for example, is, is um, just an unusual approach to, to problem solving. I mean, sure, we may, we may use a few tools here and there, but the, the real magic comes in putting stuff together that has not been put together before or using strange, quirky pop culture references to explain something to a client. The sort of stuff that traditional consulting is too scared of, traditionally. Um, it shouldn't be. It's, why not? Yeah. And, and showing a bit of humanity and vulnerability. That, for me, is what creativity is all about. It's, yeah, it's um, putting things together that you wouldn't expect um, or, or, or putting people together that you wouldn't expect to work well together either. Um, and just having a bit of courage and curiosity to do something different. I guess you hired a lot of business designers in your career. Mm. So do you remember any example when you had this conversation with somebody who really structures, oh, this is really an interesting way of solving a problem? If you, if you can share that, not the name, but just the process they took and what you find fascinating about it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> this is a, this is a tiny example. This this was um, this is a fellow called Niles, and um, I always pronounce his name slightly wrong. This is a fellow called uh, Neil Shakeshaft who uh, 
he, he now works for a, a design collective in, in Helsinki that's uh, a government-funded agency, but he was, he was part of our, our, our team in, in Finland. And, and he was the first person I, I remember to use a Big Lebowski reference in a, in a senior executive presentation, uh, which I really admired. I thought, yeah, yes, yeah, that's, that's ballsy. Um, because why not make people laugh a little bit? It mm. just it, it removes a bit of tension, and then you can get onto the real meat of the discussion rather than being a bit buttoned up about things. Now that's a tiny example. Um, what, did, what did he say about the Big Lebowski? Um, I'm struggling to remember now, um, but it was a, it was a presentation to a big energy company, and 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 he had a picture of the dude, a huge full bleed image uh, with a little caption, mm. and it was about slide three or something. You know, welcome to the welcome to the room. Here's, here's the agenda for the day. And then there's a picture of the dude, and you're like, what? <laughs> Just, it, it gets people in a different frame of reference, yeah. and that's important. Anyway, that's a tiny example. Uh, a much more meaningful example would be from, gee, we did a, we did a project once with, uh, I, I can't really share the name of the company, because it's, uh, no it's still, you know, it was a long time ago, but it's still quite um, confidential. It was with a news organization, and the news organization in question wanted to create an app for 16 to 25 year olds to get them more interested in news. Got it. And we thought, all right, that's interesting. Um, that's the wrong question. <laughs> so we got to thinking, well, what is news anyway? And that's a massive age range, 16 to 25. And we basically pivoted the brief away completely from that question into wait a minute, how do you create a movement for young people to feel more engaged so that they give a shit about news? Mm. And you know, careful how you define young people and so on. But what I really liked about that was that we brought together not just the a sort of creative, brief questioning, you know, good design approach to the whole thing, but we were able to articulate a, a business model for how to create a movement. So what you need to invest in small stages to get you from... For example, one event where you bring, you know, 30 young people in a, in, a, in a small part of a town to debate something through to, you know, a multifaceted digital and physical engagement model where you go big and, and you can do this nationally or even internationally. Mm -hmm. um, so that was cool. It was a whole thought process that went straight from, you know, ethnography and getting to know users and what makes them tick through to you know, the business model of rollout. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So yeah, a couple of examples there, but, um, another, another thing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, an HR project I saw out of Berlin, actually, and there was some, some guys in the team in Berlin. Um, they did this, uh, an engagement to try and improve the employee experience of HR tools and processes mm -hmm. and, and skills mapping and all those things. And the metaphor for the whole thing was Jedi's and Star Wars. So every now and again, there'd be a Star Wars image that was actually very apt for what they were trying to describe. So they weren't just talking about skills in the traditional sort of sense. They were, they were trying to map it to, well, you know, how does R2D2 relate to C3PO and, and, and how's that got to, how's that different from something that Skywalker brings to the, mm. to the party sort of thing. It was just different. Um, intensely creative because you're, you're bringing things together, which mm. you know, HR people, In, in a big corporate environment. Yeah. I'd never seen anything like it, you know. And, oh, wow, you're talking about our HR systems using Star Wars metaphors. Cool, why not? You know, it's disarming. Yeah. So you talked a lot about 
storytelling and mm. almost like imagery. Mm. I'm just curious, like, have you ever had someone coming in, uh, come in for the business design interview in a suit? And if yes, what did you think about it? Uh, no, I've never had anybody come to business design wearing a suit. Um, I have That's good. Had, um, uh, is that actually true? Let me think. No, 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 never. <laughs> um, apart from apart from one time, I did interview um, a technical architect at a big te- big telecoms company. This is when I was trying to first figure out if business designers actually existed, and and I met with this guy, and and he was wearing a suit, but this was in a cafe somewhere, so it was fair enough at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, I just realized, dude, you're an amazing software architect. I think that's probably where you should stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the nicest possible way. The, the guy's fantastic. I just didn't quite have the mindset yeah. that you're talking about. Um, one, one little comment on where good business designers come from. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about it. So, again, I use the word privilege quite a lot because I, I do feel quite privileged in my career and done some of this stuff. Um, when we, when we got to the stage we got to, so we had about 60, 70 people across 13 studios. When you have that many people, you, you're able to spot the, the patterns of the different personalities within the profession. Mm-hmm. And I call it profession deliberately because I, this is something I discussed with Alex Jones, who I was telling you about Alex Jones, not the, not the crazy Twitter guy from America, but Alex Jones, the business designer from the UK. Um, this is something he and I talked about a lot, which is this is actually a new profession. It's not consulting, it's not design, it's something in between. And in this world which is becoming more complex, where we need to collaborate more, um, you start to see this between hitherto disconnected industries. You know, there's mm. this middle space form. Anyway, long story short, patterns. So you had, among all the business designers that I worked with, some who were undoubtedly brilliant at storytelling. And I don't just mean putting together a deck. I mean thinking through how it's going to engage with an audience. And also then being able to present it using imagery, using anecdotes, using a bit of vulnerability, you know, good old-fashioned stuff, but using all of that to land some really significant points about the business change that needed to happen. So those were business designers. Yeah. Great at putting yeah, together decks. But they probably had some help with the imagery and stuff, no? Not necessarily. You, really? You've got, okay. you got some guys who are incredibly good, you know, very, very good at sort of image choice and things like that. Uh-huh. But all, uh-huh. all within the service of, you know, telling a fantastic story. So the storyteller type. Also very good in the business development context for obvious reasons. Um, you also had, within the business design profession, you, you had people who were actually really, really good at the sort of account management almost um, side of things. I don't mean that from a sales point of view. I just mean being able to map and understand an organization. And have empathy with the organization. Understand the client. Yes. And being a good, yes. really great PR. Okay. And, but being able to spot different people's agendas and, mm. and understand who was on the move, who had a particular agenda that stood out differently, how to tell a story to a different person relative to this person over here. You know, just understanding an organization and, and you know, being able to empathize with it. Um, then another pattern was, um, was people who were, really, really good strategists who knew what tools to use in what context and how to talk business value really eloquently. You equally had another pattern, which is the sort of product owner, um, entrepreneur type mindset, where you get folks who've maybe come from more of a startup-y background who, who just know what it needs to happen to launch a great product. 
which is a really important skill, actually. Um, so, you know, these, these folks were able to sort of whip a product into shape and also manage upwards, manage sideways, manage down, whatever, to, to get it done. And then I guess the final, but not necessarily exhaustive pattern would be people who are adept at culture and culture change mm. and understanding how to bring people on a journey. Make a uh, change. And yeah, in, inspire people to change, I suppose. So all those different kind of patterns I, I saw across the business design thing. Some people were, were, were kind of good at a bit of everything. Some yeah. people were a bit, a bit, a bit, more, a bit more specialist in one, in one area over another. But I guess the, the commonality of the whole thing, and this goes right back to our definitions yeah. question at the beginning. These are, these are people who, who empathize with the organization and the client you're working with almost as much as the user. So design's amazing at understanding the, the, the human, the, the, the person, the, the end user usually. The business designer brings empathy with the client because you need that in order to make this thing work. Yeah. And if you treat the client like an alien or, or a, an, a nuisance, then it's not gonna work properly. I think these five buckets are gonna be very useful to a lot of people who are trying to become business designers. Yeah. Because right now it feels like it's a one big mesh of everything. And yes, you can be business designers, but then some people call themselves strategy designers and some people call themselves something else and it's a whole mess. But I think knowing there are different flavors of being a business designer really could help. Because I could see myself in one of those buckets. And mm. I guess you probably can see yourself in one of those buckets. Mm. Um, so I'm just curious, like when you're hiring, do you know I'm needing, I need this flavor of a business designer or is it like I just need a business designer and I'm just figuring out which flavor this girl or boy is? Ideally, like if you've got quite a small team um, and, and you're recruiting maybe your first one, I'd, <laughs> this is, you, you kind of need a bit more of a unicorn. You know, somebody who's, who's able to dial up and dial down different aspects of all of them, mm -hmm. which is a skill in itself. Yeah. You know. Uh, somebody who thrives in ambiguity and who's able to join dots and spot patterns where there were none before and, and also manage the client and also, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not <laughs> yeah. easy. If you've got a slightly bigger team, then you maybe have more of a sense that, well, actually I've got too many people who are like really, really good at the sort of strategy business model stuff, but they're incapable of telling a really good story. And, mm. and yeah, they, they make good client relationships, but they're not able to spot the bigger picture of the organization. So then, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily formalize these, these things so much. Sometimes you just have to wear different hats for different, yeah. you know, different reasons. But that's kind of the joy of the profession in a way, I think. And that's what I get a lot of pleasure from, is just having to shift gears or mental models a little bit. Say, ooh, okay, I've got to go really deep into this thing here. Um, ah, I've got to take a step back from the whole thing and try and spot the whole overall pattern in the story. I like people who are able to flip between those different modes of thinking. Yeah. So almost, I'd say, rather than thinking of business design as being like five different things that represent five different mindsets, it's almost like people will have a natural inclination for one or two of them, mm -hmm. for sure. But what you're ideally looking for is a real hybrid mindset. You know, somebody who's able to embrace ambiguity and kind of get on with it and, yeah. and, and find their path a little bit, if that's not too much of a huge thing to ask from people. It depends on which. Uh, it depends on uh, personality and also stage of the career. Totally. So I joined. Uh, I, I, yeah, I joined Idea fresh from the school, and in school you're used to one way of thinking. Mm. 
very deductive and embracing ambiguity in the beginning was really hard <laughs> the first year was just awful internally in my mind like I had no idea what's happening on the project. It was like just going left and right. And today we say this, tomorrow we say that. And like, why don't we just make a decision, just go with it. Yeah. And then, so I guess like if you're straight out of school, especially business school, I think this can be really hard. But if you worked in a startup, you experience some of that firsthand because today it's X and tomorrow it's Y. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you is, do you require people who apply for business design position to have a portfolio? Define, the, define portfolio. <laughs> I, I can't. I mean, I, I, it's funny because Trent, so who hired me at IDEO, he asked me for a portfolio. <laughs> okay. And uh, I just didn't have one. Um, so I just came up with something. Um, I'm actually going to share it online pretty soon. But I'm just curious, like, what do people need to, you know, give you when they're applying for a business design position? And if they don't have to, I guess, since you asked me what is portfolio, I guess you don't have this as a requirement yet. Um, would it help if somebody had one? I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, I have never asked for a portfolio from somebody. I've asked for a CV, of course. I've asked yeah. for... I've asked for um, evidence of what people have done in projects. I usually get people to do some form of collaborative exercise with the team I'm hiring into mm. so that we all understand each other a lot, a lot more. How does that look like? So you give somebody a brief um, either a week before or mm -hmm. even an hour before. You know, here, here's, a, here's a brief that we've worked on in the past in the yeah. agency. Um, how would you approach this? Walk yeah. us through it. Show us how you think. Um, on the spot? On the spot. Okay. And I find, I find that often works way better than having a bunch of things that can be talked through. Because when somebody's talking through a portfolio, it's like, was it actually them? Was it the team? Was it, mm -hmm. was it the effect of them being in the team? Or, was, or were they playing a small part and they're taking a credit for the whole team's work? It's very hard to judge. Mm. But if you get somebody in a room and you say, look, we had this brief from Unilever uh, last year, which we didn't win, but the question is really interesting. If, if you were to approach this situation, what would you do differently? Mm. Um, because then you get a, a, a gauge of, well, how do they engage with us in the room? What's their thought process? Are they are they questioning things, or are they just taking the order and delivering it? Yeah. So I usually I usually go for more of an exercise approach rather than demanding a, a, a portfolio as such. That said, a little anecdote from my past: when I, when I was first being, first interviewing at, at, at Fjord, um, I interviewed Mike Beeston, which is terrifying. Mike Beeston was one of the founders. Um, he now he now runs a, a rather amazing NGO in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Anyway. Um, so when I, when I met with Mike, I was terrified because he's this, well, he's the founder of the company, I can't say, or one of the founders of the company, and incredibly intelligent, articulate, and very different. You know, he's this, he's ex, he's ex such, he's got, he's got this completely different background to mine. Uh, I had no idea what to expect. Um, I printed out some things that I'd done in my consulting life, you know, like KPI models or business strategies and stuff, and, and I took, and took some things on paper because I had a gut feel that I might need to use them. And at one point he looked at me across the table and he said, what's your output? And I could, I could feel myself, just, oh God, what am I going to say, what am I going to say? And I said, <laughs> well, um, I've got to be honest, Mike, a lot of my output is actually PowerPoint um, because that's, you know, 
because when I mean I can show you some examples, and this is a KPI, and he's like, "Oh, no, it's fine. I don't need to see it. Yeah, no, we we do a lot of PowerPoint here as well. It's fine. Don't worry." I was like, "Oh, good. Okay." Um, in other words, he's not asking me for artwork or um, or evidence of visual thinking or anything like that because I, you know, I frankly don't have anything like that. But I think what he saw was um, I was prepared to think about you know deliverables and things that I'd done in my past as as artifacts that I would bring to a project. And yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, it was a fairly terrifying moment, but yeah, got through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have those moments where you're like, oh, what am I going to answer quickly, quickly? Mm. Just something on the spot. Cool. Um, I actually have one final question for you. Yeah, go for it. Uh, which is, what are your favorite business design books or resources? Fiction. Fiction? Yep. Okay. Um, I think business designers should be as widely read as possible. Cool. Um, I could say, oh yeah, yeah, read everything by Dave Clark, read Liminality. Liminality is a very good book, actually, by the way. Um, I could say read Business Model Generation. I could say read Conscious Business, Lean Startup. Um, what's the... Oh, yeah, the, the Coach's Casebook. It's a really interesting Coach's Casebook. Coach's Casebook. It's just, it's just about things that happen with people at work, you know, folks who are... So it's, it's almost psychology. It's, it's very interesting. I could say, um, you know, that book that categorizes every business model in the world ever, that one... 50, uh, That's the one, yeah, the 50 things with the tube map. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all lovely. It's all, it's all good stuff. But um, I, I read a lot of fiction, and um, I get a lot from that, actually. I'm, I'm reading Machines Like Me at the moment, which is the, the new Ian McEwan thing. It's a thought experiment about AI, if you think about it. Um, I don't usually go for fiction that's as direct. I really like um, European literature. I like, I like Stefan Zweig, um, his recollections of Europe in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, uh, what else? I, I love Paul Oster. I love his like ways of creating overlapping narratives and, and the fact that you know I never quite know what's true and, and whatnot. I like um, I like poetry. Um, been reading some of that recently. Um, what else have I read that's really good? Oh, um, Robert Zetaler. Discovered him as an author recently. I read quite a lot of German stuff as well. Um, anyway, I, I, I just think that. Reading, reading around a topic and not not too not too obviously within the topic is probably a better approach. Interesting. To That's a really good point. So, being like a system thinker, also knowing how different things affect each other. Everything's connected. Somewhere. Yeah. Especially in business. Yeah. Global totally. business. Totally. Also, it's just it's just quite nice to be able to refer to um, a business challenge in a. In a in a in a pop culture way, or, or something yeah. that's just completely different. Um, I like a lot, I like watching telly, frankly, as well. <laughs> watching um, Better Call Saul at the moment, which is like a case study in hustling and entrepreneurship. <laughs> um, He's a master negotiator. Oh my god, it's incredible! Yeah, it's incredible. Put him up against the wall, you'll always find a way out. It's, yeah, it's, it's impressive. Um, what else has been good? Stranger Things is just of course fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love that. Um, the Wire was incredible. That was that was, that, was, that. that was the first sort of almost like Dickensian um, yeah. approach to television. That we, that we saw. I'm just curious, like, does yeah. your mind work in a way where, even when you're on vacation, even when you read things that are non-business related, you make these connections back to business stuff? <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> I think one of, one of the things I, I, I spotted instantly when I first 
started out in the in the design world, uh, you know, when I started doing business design, was that the, the work ethic was very very different to consulting. Like consulting is just you throw everything at it until you're until you can do no more and you drop. Yeah. And and it's almost like it's the perfect way to kill any enthusiasm yeah. about the problem because you just want to get through it. You're you're in you're in the machine. It's ten at night. You've still got two hours to go and my God, am I ever going to get through this? Whereas design is, on the face of it, people don't work, quotes, long hours. However, people are always thinking about it. So, yeah. you know, they, they, they go do something else in the evening, they come back fresher with better perspective and better ideas the next day. And um, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's because of that balance, I think. Now, sometimes with, with clients that you work with, they, they're, they're paying for consulting help. So... They think, oh my God, these people are not working hard enough. But then they see the output and they go, ah, that's different. You've totally opened my mind to something different. And that's the, that's the clincher. That's, that's when things get really interesting. Um, because, yeah, you're always thinking about stuff and um, you always come back with a fresh perspective. And if you take the time to do other stuff rather than stay within your topic all the time, then you'll just be a more rounded mm. professional, in my opinion. And usually the best ideas come where you're not actively thinking about something. But you take your time watch the TV or something else, yeah, exactly. read something. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was one of the big things that also I really liked. I was, I was an intern at a management consulting before I joined mm. the design uh, consultancy and the number of hours is starkly different. And that was yeah. the thing I really liked because then in the evening you can really decompress, mm. think about something else and you come back next day with a different idea. Whereas there you didn't even sleep because all night you just processed that same information, you just come back to just put this into machine, like you said. Yeah, maybe change two words around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're just, instead of really rethinking the whole thing, you're just changing minor things. Cool, John. Thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. I hope it was a good experience. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Wish you all the best. Cool. So that's everything in today's podcast. I just like to make a short announcement, which is that in two weeks' time, we're opening um, the next DMBA intake, uh, the DMBA 3. So on July 29, the early application window will open, so you can then apply and have a higher chance to get in. And um, if you're still on the verge, you can also hear from our previous participant. Here is actually Wojtek, uh, who is based in Sydney, describing his DMBA experience. Hello, everyone. My name is Wojtek. I design at Publicis Sapient in Sydney, Australia. First of all, thank you, Alan, for having the drive and passion to share the knowledge. I have to admit that after over 10 years in the industry, I got slightly disinterested. However, the MBA got me excited again. So cheers to everyone who made this experience so damn good. Thank you, guys. Cool. So again, like if you want to join uh, the DMBA, you can sign up for the waiting list. So you're going to be the first one to know when the doors for the next intake open and to do that you can just head to d.mba so literally just www.d.mba and there you can sign up for the waiting list and this is not really everything in this episode uh here again next week probably with the next mini dmba episode where we talk about one specific business concept and how it relates to the work of designers have a nice week